Would you please join with me in prayer? Lord, what a privilege it is to gather as your people on this Lord's day and just rest from our work. Praise your holy name. Receive from your word and sacrament your amazing grace and truth. And to serve you, Lord, as we serve one another. It's a blessed thing to be in the household of God. And we just pray, Lord, as this word is brought forward, you would think my thoughts, our thoughts, that my words would be yours. You would bend our wills to your own. And Lord God, that you would bring a zeal and a passion for our Lord Jesus Christ in every single one of our hearts. And for it's in his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Yesterday, Kim and I were down in Stowe to see my granddaughter's dance recital. And the great thing about being a grandfather is you can do magic tricks with five-year-olds. You know, I got this dollar bill here, right, folks? Here's George Washington right here, okay? And I'm going to turn him upside down without turning him upside down because it's going to be magic because abracadabra, voila, there he is. He's upside down. Ooh, ah, you know? That was amazing, wasn't it? Yes, thank you very much. You're welcome. Gene the Magnificent, I told you, all right? And trying to get, it was no problem convincing Ida Bell all that because she thought that was the most amazing thing in the world. Well, it's one thing to be fooled by a simple sleight of hand, but it's another thing if we're spiritually deceived. And that's what 1 John is trying to make sure his church, the church of his day and our day, to make sure we're not spiritually deceived by any spiritual sleight of hand. Why? Because eternal souls hang in the balance. Today we celebrate Pentecost, that great celebration that we have God in us. If Christmas was God with us and Easter God for us, Pentecost is God in us, empowering us for mission. And so we celebrate this so that we can be a people who can flourish in our walks with him today, in God's kingdom today so that we can bring heaven to earth and be a blessing wherever we're found. So I encourage you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2, because today we're going to continue this. A little overlap this week, because last week when we read verses 26 and 27, I saw people's eyes kind of tilt. And we're going to go a little deeper into this passage so that we might see how the Holy Spirit's anointing helps us. Because what we're going to learn in these verses is that the Holy Spirit helps us see clearly. And two, the Holy Spirit helps us abide. How so? By his anointing, as John calls it. We're in this series called That You May Know, based on the letter of 1 John to the early church. As we are getting greater confidence in our walks with Christ as we travel through 1 John together. And today we're going to focus on the Holy Spirit, because what better day to do so than the Feast of Pentecost. With that said, number one, the Holy Spirit's anointing helps us to see clearly. Notice what he says in verse 26. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. This has not been new to the church at any era. It's always the case. Jesus wrote in Matthew 24 as he was talking about his second coming. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders 
so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 2.13 that evil people and imposters will go on from being bad to worse, deceiving and be, being deceived. So this is not new, and we shouldn't wring our hands and say, oh my goodness. No. The Lord has anointed us to make sure that we don't stray. And so last week, you may remember, we talked about the various uh, traits of the false church of our day. We hear it in the liberal theology coming out of the 20th century, but we also hear it out of the progressivism that's in today's church as well that makes sexual morality, they would call, or immorality the height of virtue, quite frankly. And so no, Jesus comes along and says that's not true. And so many of these churches deny the full deity of Christ, deny the full humanity of Christ, deny his eternal nature. They deny the exclusivity, exclusivity of Christ as the way to salvation. And I could go on and on, but I'll spare you. You can go back and listen to last week's sermon about all those false deceits. But the question is, John is writing, how is it that his readers are not being deceived? How is it? Verse 27, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you. Notice, the anointing that you received, past tense, abides in you presently, in the present tense. You have all you need. This is a reference to the Holy Spirit who abides in, or you could rather say indwells all those who have placed their trust in Jesus Christ. At the moment of your conversion, the Holy Spirit instantaneously changed you. You know, regeneration, boom, born again. All at the same time. And what happens at that moment is all of a sudden you find yourself desirous to know Christ, desirous to read, desirous to pray, desirous to serve, desirous to, to be in God's assembly on an inconvenient time on Sunday mornings. It's, it's all what we desire. Now, you may not be doing it perfectly. <laughs> that's what sanctification is all about. We're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. We're sanctified by grace through faith in Christ alone. And so it's important that we recognize that this is all a work of the Holy Spirit. He not only indwells Christians individually, he indwells us corporately as we gather together to sing his praise and hear his word. And so that word anointing occurs twice in this section that Carol read for us this morning. Verse 20, but you have been anointed by the Holy One. So clearly, John is referring to the work of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life. Even though the actual words Holy Spirit do not occur, the anointing is the action of the Holy Spirit and is symbolic of the Holy Spirit. It's always been this way. That word anointing in the Old Testament, prophets, priests, and kings were anointed with oil to symbolize their chosen status by God himself and to set them apart from the work that God had called them to do as the Holy Spirit indwelled particular leaders for the ministry he had called them. But in the New Testament, we read about Jesus being anointed with the Holy Spirit in Acts 10, 38, referring to that act. And so in the final hours before his crucifixion, Jesus spoke to his followers 
about the anointing of the Holy Spirit, and John's point is that every Christian has this anointing from the Holy Spirit, not just a chosen few, as in the Old Testament. Therefore, because of the Holy Spirit's presence in your life, John continues in verse 27, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. What does that mean? Well, let me tell you what it doesn't mean first. You need me. <laughs> Please don't get rid of me. <laughs> no, we need godly Christian teachers in our life to instruct us. It doesn't mean that there's no need for teachers in the church. Other verses, obviously, in the scriptures, most foremost is Paul writing in Ephesians 4 that the Lord gives to the church pastors, teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Nor does it mean that you will suddenly make all A's in your math class, young people. So you need to study physics as well, all your subjects. And so the difference, what it does mean is that there's going to be a difference in the direction of your life and the quality of your living. The fruit of the Holy Spirit will begin to be produced in you. You will find yourself, as you find these desires changing, you will be more loving, joyful, peaceful, patient, kind, good, faithful, self-controlled even. Can you imagine? And so what John means is that Christians who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, because of the context of the First John letter, they can smell false teaching. They may not get it right away because they might be really young in the faith, but they, something's not quite right here. And so he goes on to say that this anointing is, quote, true. That the mark of a false teacher is that he seeks to deceive the faithful with doctrine that is false. But the mark of a true believer can recognize that it is false, and therefore the Holy Spirit's teaching is true within the believer's life. Now, there are many in our to dis, uh, culture today, John's words cut across the grain of the distorted view of truth. Barna, the most recent Barna research in 2016, I, I bet it's probably changed a little bit since then, but Barna Research Group surveyed 1,000 adults in the United States. Only 35% believed that truth is an absolute unaffected by the circumstances. Furthermore, in 2016, born again, professing Christians, 41% believed in absolute truth. Friends, in the church, that meant 69% didn't believe that truth is relative. What's true for you is not true for me. Well, I think John is reminding us in these passages that the visible church will always have within it some who aren't genuine Christians, and we just need to make sure that we're right with the Lord in the church. Jesus confirmed this in his agricultural parable of the wheat and tares. You remember that? The wheat and tares look so much alike that it's difficult to distinguish upon them, between them. Jesus is the true sower. And so is the wheat. The enemy comes in in the middle of the night, sows the tares, and they both grow up together. 
some, of the, some would say that the tares need to be weeded out. And Jesus commands that we should not do so because the wheat and tares look so much alike that if we were to go in and uproot the tares, that you'd uproot some of the wheat as well. And Jesus reminds us that God will weed out the tares from the wheat at the end of time. Therefore, there will always be people who are not true Christians within the local church. And so it's incumbent upon us to make sure that we are part of the true church. You know, some people depend upon their baptism to make them a Christian. Some people depend upon their outward church membership. Some people depend upon their confirmation that we'll celebrate next week at this service. Others depend upon their works, but none of that will get us into heaven. You can be a member of the church your entire life and die and end up in hell. What makes a person a Christian has nothing to do with his baptism, the church he attends, the denomination he belongs to, or the money that he gives. What makes someone a follower of Christ is the fact that he or she has repented of their sin and has placed their entire trust in the finished work of Christ upon the cross for them and trusted in that atoning work. And these verses remind us that there's a difference between deception and ignorance. Some people are just spiritually ignorant and just don't know any better. I suspect there are some false teachers who don't necessarily have an evil agenda. Uh, they're just being, they're not intentionally deceiving other people, but they are being used by the enemy to deceive others. For whatever reason, they don't know the scriptures. That's the case of spiritual ignorance. And there's a difference between deliberate deception and ignorance. But both are bad. <laughs> you don't want to be spiritually ignorant. You don't also don't want to be deceived spiritually. And Paul, as I quoted earlier, warns that in the last time, evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Notice, Paul calls these people, even if they're spiritually ignorant, they're evil. They're imposters, and they will go from bad to worse in their activities because the character determines the activity. Deceiving and being deceived. And so these deceivers are themselves deceived. And so therefore, in the church, the Holy Spirit clearly helps us to see them for who they are. They're false. Therefore, we will follow Christ together. So secondly, the Holy Spirit empowers us to abide in Christ, verse 27. As he says, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. So you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as this anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has been taught you, abide in him. Well, how can we keep from being deceived? In our walk with Christ day by day? Well, we must immerse ourselves in the scriptures. Notice that John says in verse 27 that this anointing teaches you about everything. Well, how does the Holy Spirit do that? Through the word of God. 
Remember what Paul said about young Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.15. From childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred, rise, sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. And he doesn't stop there. He says then in the next verse, verse 16, he exhorts them that all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Notice that in this passage that is because the, the Bible is breathed out by God, divinely inspired, it is valuable for teaching doctrine. In fact, the Bible is the only true source of sound doctrine. All teaching should be measured by whether it conforms with the scripture or not. And furthermore, the Bible is profitable for reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. We measure all teaching about spiritual things by the yardstick of the Bible. And the Holy Spirit uses the word of God in our lives to teach truth and refute error within us. And this is what John is talking about. That the Holy Spirit teaches us about everything of spiritual nature. And the presence of the Holy Spirit in our life, coupled with the knowledge of the word of God, is sufficient to guide us into truth so we will not be deceived in our day. So John says it is true, that this anointing is true and is no lie. This is familiar. John said in our gospel reading that Scott read for us this morning, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. That's powerful. He goes on in chapter 16, verse 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and will declare to you the things that are to come. Notice in 16, 13, that Jesus says the Holy Spirit will guide the disciples into all truth. And in 14, 17, that he will be with you and be in you. And that indwelling was fulfilled in the Acts 2 reading that we heard Carol read earlier. Elements of both of these verses from the Gospel of John now reappear in his letter to the church to remind them all that we have in the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit up to this point in the lives of John's readers through chapter 1 and chapter 2 has been our teacher. And John, John has protected us from error in the past, and he will do so in the present and into the future. And so as a result, the teaching of truth will indwell us and exhort us to abide in him. And so what does abide mean? To abide in the Holy Spirit means to obey the Spirit's word, the scriptures. To obey is to abide and we have help and by the Holy Spirit to abide. We're to abide in the Holy Spirit by abiding, uh, obeying the word of God, by walking in it. Now, there are certain Christians today that take a, talk a great deal about being spirit-anointed. You will hear that in Pentecostal circles. And some of them believe that the Holy Spirit is giving a new revelation today that is on par with the scripture themselves. And notice John does not say that. He does not say that the Holy Spirit is teaching new truth today. 
The Holy Spirit is not revealing new truth, but is rather teaching old truth. We need to walk in old paths, Bishop Ra would say. The old truth is the truth of the scriptures. And so we must always distinguish between the doctrine of revelation and the doctrine of illumination. The doctrine of revelation is completed in scripture and in the person and work of Christ as has been revealed to us. The doctrine of illumination is an ongoing process whereby the Holy Spirit illumines this revealed truth to help us and help us to apprehend it and comprehend it. And one of the most important roles the Holy Spirit plays in our lives is that of illumination, helping us to understand the Scripture and discern the will of God. So contextually throughout this letter, John is combating those Gnostic teachers of the first century as we stand firm in the truth of the gospel and weigh against all the other false views about who Jesus is today. The so-called new knowledge of Jesus today. The old saying, if it's new, it isn't true, is pretty good test, quite frankly. We should always be wary of those who come in the name of Jesus Christ attempting to teach something new. That somehow over 2,000 years the church has gotten wrong. No, we need to use the, the Bible as our yardstick and our measuring stick. And so clearly these two verses are talking about the Holy Spirit's power in our lives to counteract the false teachings around us and to help us to uh, persevere in our Christian walks as we abide in this good news together. The Holy, where the Holy Spirit is at work, there will be truth, and the Holy Spirit will never lead anyone to do anything contrary to the Word of God and is never inconsistent with the Son of God. All teaching and religious experience claims must be subject to five tests. So I encourage you to jot these down. This is our application for today. And they will help us to make sure that we're walking, staying on the right track as we follow Christ together. Number one, the first test is the Bible test. Since the Bible is the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God, it's the benchmark for all truth. All religious teaching and experience must be measured by the yardstick of Scripture. If any such teaching or experience does not measure up, it should be rejected. That's number one, the Bible test. Number two, the second test is the Jesus test. Does this teaching or religious experience magnify the Lord Jesus Christ for who he is? Or does it in any way denigrate him? Does it stay on the line of Scripture? Does it add to who Jesus is, or does it subtract to who Jesus is? If it does, we reject it. We stay on the line of Scripture. And when a community focuses primarily on the Holy Spirit and all his miraculous works, it's off balance. We believe the Holy Spirit works. The greatest miracle the Holy Spirit does is a, is a converted life. Quite frankly, that's a, lot e that's a lot harder, it seems, from my perspective, than any healing that he could do. The, the third test is the character test. Does this teaching or religious experience promote holiness of life? 
does this person portray more love, more grace, more joy? Or is it teaching others to live holy lives? Fourth, the decency in an order test. Paul writes this about this in 1 Corinthians. As the church gathers together, are the worship services decent and in order? Or are they chaotic? Does this experience or teaching address that? If it's not decent and in order, we must reject it. And last, but certainly not least, the fifth test is the evangelism test. Does this teaching or this experience promote winning people to Jesus Christ? Does this doctrine or experience help or hinder people from coming to Christ? See, Jesus taught us that he is the vine and we are the branches in John 15. If anyone will abide in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from him, we can do nothing. So therefore, we must stay connected to the vine. And that's what John is trying to remind us. Because he knows we have his gospel. He's calling us back to that abiding. And that's what John is saying to us. In closing, the great Norwegian explorer, Roald Amundsen, at the end of the 19th century, he both fascinating character. He explored both the North and South Pole several times. He finally disappeared. It killed him. But the reality was his wife was very concerned. He was the first person to discover the magnetic meridian of the North Pole. So a fascinating guy. So one time as he was going to the North Pole and his wife was just kind of getting sick of all these trips. So she wanted him to carry a carrier, carrier pigeon with him so that when he arrived, he'd let it go and fly back to Norway because it's not that far from Norway to the North Pole. So he arrived and he unleashed the pigeon. And it went all the way back home to her home. And she knew her husband was alive. It was an amazing thing. She rejoiced. And so my friends, it's the same when Jesus ascended. He was gone, but the disciples clung to his promise to send them the Holy Spirit. And when, what joy then, as we heard read in Acts chapter 2, when the dove-like Holy Spirit descended upon them to empower them to take this gospel to the least and lost of the world to Jerusalem, to Judea, and to the ends of the earth. And the disciples had with them a continual reminder that Jesus is alive, has conquered the grave, and he is seated at the right hand of the Father. And John's reminding us, so do we. We can have that exact same confidence. So therefore, brothers and sisters, let's abide in him and follow him together. Empowered by the Holy Spirit for his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this encouraging word that you haven't let us alone. That we have, each and every one of us, the Holy Spirit and the anointing of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And we pray that we would have eyes to see, one, the false views that are going around us today. And we would be that different group of followers, that we would listen to people. 
we would ask good questions of them, affirm what we can affirm, and ask clarifying questions, repeat back their worldview, and then lovingly share the good news that is found in Christ. And Holy Spirit, we pray you go before us. Help us to know, be slow to speak, quick to listen, and be so joyful that people would wonder what you're doing in our lives, Lord. Holy Spirit, bring that out in us so that this Pentecost season will be one filled with great fruit in each and every one of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.